Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. It comes from Micah, chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. I always have to look up. <laughs> um, now I muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too, young, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from, an, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother, brothers shall then return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Azrian comes, sorry, into our land and treads into our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Azria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrance. And he shall deliver us from as, gosh, I'm sorry, Azrian, when he comes into our land and treads within our border. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We've been looking at uh, a series through the whole um, Advent season uh, through the prophets, uh, trying to analyze and understand and sort of appropriate all the ways that the prophets anticipated the coming of the Messiah and uh, the ways that they anticipated him uh, influencing and changing society and changing uh, God's people in, in many different ways. And this morning, uh, the way the book of Micah anticipates the coming of the Messiah is to say that when uh, the Messiah comes, he will be the one true king. And that what it means to, to be uh, looking forward to Christmas and appropriating Christmas is to look forward to the coming of the king. Now, um, when we hear that sort of promise at Christmas, um, there's definitely a part of American culture that does not resonate with that whatsoever because of our sort of democratic, uh, Republican rejection of a king on the founding of our country. Um, there's a professor, uh, Carl Truman, who uh, is, um, has been teaching on the East Coast for uh, about 30 years. He's taught in Philadelphia. Uh, at Princeton and now at a university in, in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, he's both a British and an American citizen. And uh, what Truman says is that, you know, Americans that sort of don't know what to do with a king or they're like, this part doesn't resonate with me, we don't, we don't know how to relate to a king, he says it's actually very sociological naive. He says because Americans deeply long for some sort of a king. And he says to understand that all you have to do is look at our obsession with the celebrities. The way, and he doesn't just mean, you know, cultural ones, he means the way that we are obsessed with politicians, the way we're obsessed with athletes, the way we're obsessed with musicians, with actors, with anybody, with any kind of influence whatsoever. This is what he says. He says, why do we let unqualified people carry the day on weighted matters? 
We don't, just, we don't just want love. We don't just want justice. We don't just want a way forward. For some reason, we want their way forward. And even more so, we don't just want what they can give us. We even want them. Here's what he means. Look, when you, when you are interested in the opinion of a, of a baseball player and what he thinks about justice, or, you're in, or an athlete and what he thinks about love and unity, or, or a musician, how they talk about how we should get along as a society. Truman just says, that's your longing for a king. And everybody here, we, we long for some sort of a king to come into our world and put it the way it's meant to be. And there's a hymn that we all sing over and over again this season, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And then the lyric says, let every heart prepare him room. So here's what we're going to do is how do you prepare him room for the coming of the king? How do you prepare your heart for the coming of Jesus? Here's how you do it. One, you have to be vulnerable and needy. Two, you have to be submissive and obedient. Three, surprised and disrupted. And fourth, patient and hopeful. This is how you prepare yourself. Prepare your heart, making room for the coming of the king. First, vulnerable and needy. If you look at the text, in verse 1, here's what the prophet says. He says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. This is actually a very difficult phrase that translators uh, have worked uh, many ways to sort of uh, appropriate for us and try to convey what the Hebrew is actually saying. Um, So it's actually one of those verses, if you compare the multiple English translations, there will be a wide range of the ways this is rendered. Uh, One of the best ways, one scholar Uh, I read, put it this way. He says, uh, one way to read it is to say is, get behind walls, you people of a walled city. This is what Micah is saying. Like, you people who are already afraid, you better buckle up and be very afraid. And he's saying this, look, you you are a, a people Israel living in exile. That is, the Assyrians have come and they have captured you, taken you away from your land, taken you to a, a life that uh, does not flourish, does not seem hopeful, does not see a way forward. And he says, and more is coming. You're not just in exile, you're going to be attacked in exile. And it's in that context that he then says, but fear not, a king is coming. And here's what we learn right away about the coming of a king. The only people who are really open and preparing their heart and longing for a king are people in distress. That the way to have a heart that longs for a king is, is if really you are under constant attack. Um, now, the ancient uh, uh, Near East, in, in the New Testament writers with this, um, when they talk about Assyria, like despite that being one of the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, like prevalent enemies of Israel, it's over and over and over again. So if you do a search, um, maybe on your, your Bible app or something like that, and you cite, type the word Assyria, it's a- almost a thousand times mentioned in the Old Testament. But if you look in the New Testament, it's never mentioned once. Why? It's because when the New Testament writers have the coming of Jesus as the king, here's what they begin to understand, that Assyria was this dominating enemy for Israel, but there's actually a greater enemy that this king has come that this king has come to defeat and destroy. 
And what it means is that, look, the oppressing enemy that the king has come to defeat is not something that's out there even like Israel. It's actually something that's more pressing on us, and that's the nature of sin itself. And one of the reasons you and I aren't desperate for a king, you don't want to know why, is because you, you and I think the most pressing matters in our life are external and not internal. That is, we almost always appropriate the external life over the internal life, and that's why we're not in distress, or the things that we are in distress over are all out there and not internally. But the way to prepare yourself for the king is to understand that his coming is to a people in distress, that people are being attacked, but by something that seems so covert and so hidden. Let me explain what I mean to you. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, there's a very famous story about Cain and Abel. And uh, Cain is this very angry older brother who uh, wants to take advantage of his younger brother. And the Lord God comes to him in chapter 4, verse 7, and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And what he means is that there is something that is undetectable, there is something that is about to pounce on you that's going to come and dominate your life. That your, your biggest threat, Cain, is actually not able and what he could take away from you. It's not anything out there. The most dangerous thing is something hiding within you. And the pressing enemy on your life is something so often that you're not in touch with. Uh, the English reformer Thomas Cranmer, uh, he once described the human condition this way. He says, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Here's what Cranmer means. He says, this is how your heart works within you. Um, you have somebody who you hate. You're, I hate that person. Um, but you'll tell yourself, well, but I have reasons because they're difficult. Or they don't know how to do relationships. Or this relationship is all one-sided. So all of my hate, he says, I uh, desire to hate them. I'm choosing to hate them, and I can justify the whole thing. Or another one, uh, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to this. How, how in the world do we live with some sort of addiction? How in the world do we keep choosing this? How do we keep letting this in our life? Cranmer says, basically, what we do is we tell, tell ourselves things like, well, but no one knows how hard my life is. What I go through from Monday to Saturday if people knew what I was battling at home, what I was battling at work, what I was battling in my relationships, what I was battling even internally, they wouldn't think much of this. And what Cranmer is sort of seeing and suggesting for you is that there is something pressing on you. There is something crouching. There is something coming after you. And it's not out there. It's within Dak Shepard, this famous actor, I think I've mentioned this before, has this amazing podcast interview where he talks about his own addiction and struggles. And he said, you know, at first when he was so addicted to drugs and alcohol, what he would constantly tell himself is that, well, well acting is hard. Making it in Los Angeles is just very, it's, it's more challenging than anything else. And if anybody else tried to do this, they would be struggling with the same thing. And if I was just in Iowa and a farmer I wouldn't be struggling with this kind of thing whatsoever. But then he said he got his big break in this movie called Zathura for kids. And he said the problem was when he got that break, he was still doing the very same things and doing it at a higher rate. 
and he couldn't make sense of it. And he finally began to understand, and then he said this, I had to finally admit to myself that now my problem was not my circumstances in the business, that something way more profound is broken, and I was powerless over it. And he, here's what we're learning here. You will never be ready for the coming of the king unless you can say that to yourself. That the most pressing thing in your life is not the bills that you have to pay, is not the reputation that you have to keep up with. It is something crouching within you. It is an enemy like Assyria coming after your soul, whispering things in you that you will justify in your mind to make all the actions within you that are actually plaguing your life and ruining your relationships and destroying your identity, you will justify the whole thing. And it's because there's an enemy attacking you over and over and over again. And until you get in touch with that, and you're able to come vulnerable and needy and say, I need a king, Christmas will make no sense to you. The way we have to come to a king, first of all, is vulnerable and needy. Secondly, though, we have to come waiting for a king, submissive and obedient. In verse 4, Here's what the prophet tells us. He says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. In the Hebrew, it says, He will stand amongst them and shepherd them. The, the word for stand is a coronation word. It, it means he has been permanently installed to care for his people. And the metaphor it gives is that he will shepherd them. This is a very common word used for kings in the ancient Near East to describe what their relationship and responsibility for their people is. That is, that somebody who is in charge, what their job is, is to protect, to lead, and to care for their people. But it says this king will come and he will protect his people he will care for his people. He will lead his people. How? We're told, in the strength of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Because the Israelites would have understood the strength of the Lord uh, to be this warrior language. Um, so, you, you read a lot of uh, ancient uh, Old Testament narratives. There's a lot of moments where the Lord intervenes in them in a battle-like way and literally defeats their enemies. And so, a lot of people would have understood thinking that the Messiah was going to come in that same kind of strength. But when Jesus shows up, it's actually a totally different strength. And one of the most acute places you see this is uh, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is a grown man and he's been baptized. And the first thing that happens is he goes out into the desert and faces the most acute attack he will ever face in his living life. And that's with the devil for 40 days. And when the devil comes to attack him, and is giving all of these uh, lies and just painful accusations on him. I mean, Jesus doesn't like, pull out his Harry Potter wand or his like bow and arrow and attack him. He starts quoting Scripture. That the way Jesus finds strength to sort of fight off the most pressing attacks on his life is to begin to just over and over and over again quote the book of Deuteronomy. And what Micah is telling us is that the way this king will shepherd his people, protect them, lead them, watch over them, is in the strength of his word. And the way that you begin to prepare yourself and open yourself up to the king 
is if you are submissive and obedient to God's Word. Now, I, I think I've told you this before. Um, uh, almost immediately, the human heart hears that kind of language and sinks and just thinks, this is the kind of king that wants to oppress and constrict my life. Uh, when, when one of my children was very young, uh, he was pr- just really giving Becky a hard time, disobeying, struggling, or they were, <clears throat> she was just struggling to parent in this moment, and she looked at him, and she said, do you know what it means to obey? And he said, yeah, it means to be sad. <laughs> because everyone believes that if you submit and obey into somebody's word, what it will do is it will not free your life, it will constrict your life. And the way to, th- to be set free from that is to understand and know about Christmas. Because what God's word will do is it actually, it will not constrict your life. This is a king who wants to shepherd and love his people through his word. And the more that you submit and obey and bring that into your life, Oh, man, all that will do is give you more of the king. Now, what does it look like, actually, to submit and obey into God's Word? Because there's lots of people who quote God's Word, and they just uh, throw Scripture out at people, and it feel like this is, you know, being shepherded by God's Word. But that, it's not that simple. You know, I mean, my kids have talked about this. You know, Jesus says in uh, John 2 at the, at the wedding of Cana, uh, his, wa- his mom looks at him and she says, you know, hey, Jesus, we're out of wine. And Jesus looks at her and says, woman, what does that have to do with me? So if your kids want to go through the house, uh, when she says, make your bed and say, uh, uh, woman, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> and just say, hey, I'm just submitting to the king. <laughs> That's not what the Bible means to be shepherded by God's word. Hebrews 4.12, it says, the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it splits joint and marrow. And what John Owen says in his commentary on that is he says, look, God's Word is more than just something that's quotable. What it is, is it means to have a living, active relationship with Jesus, where He is the King in your life so that when He speaks to us by His Word, in His Word, it can have a formative, changing relationship with us, like any kind of a friend who says, hand me that, or could you share that, or could you hop out of the way, like a living, active person who speaks things at times that we need, we want, and even at times when it makes Him a king, things that we don't like. And to have a living, active relationship with Jesus, it means you're going to have to understand there are things that He says that you don't want to hear and will not make sense. But if you let Him speak into your life when it doesn't make sense, that's when you really know that you're opening yourself up to a king. Let me illustrate it this way. One of the best um, books in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Magician's Nephew. And if if you've not read that, one of the main characters in that book is a little boy named Diggory. And Diggory's situation is that his mother is dying of cancer. And he's understandably distraught. He's very upset. And so he comes to Aslan, the king, and he says, Aslan, heal my mom. She's sick and she's dying. Please do whatever it takes 
to heal my mother. And Aslan won't immediately do it, but Aslan tells him, go pick an apple of life from this one tree. And so when he goes to go get the apple uh, from the tree, the golden apple, immediately he's tempted to want to eat it because he, he realizes all the things that this possible apple could do. And then the witch says, hey, if you actually take this apple and you go give it to your mother, it will actually help her, and that will heal her. And he's tempted to circumvent Aslan and just take it straight to his mom. But Aslan says, you bring me the apple. And Diggory's like, why? And he doesn't give him a reason. And we learn later that the reason that Aslan wants the apple is because he wants to take the seeds and plant them in Narnia and expel all death, hate, and evil forever and ever and ever from this apple. But Diggory doesn't know any of it. He's tempted to take things into his own hands. He's tempted to take things for his mom and to give them to her. And Aslan never, ever, ever gives him a reason. And what Lewis is trying to get us to see is that, look, obedience, look, when you have to have a reason, you know what it is? It's it's not obedience. It's negotiation. It's saying, look, if... I'll do it if you explain this to me or you do, that, you do something that I want. That is not submitting to anybody. That's bartering. Lewis tells elsewhere in his space trilogy, in a place where he says, look, the pleasure of obeying is ruined if we always know the reason. The pleasure of obeying the Lord is that we are obeying the Lord. Having a reason not to obey, excuse me, having a reason is not obedience. It is negotiation. Now, let's apply this in, in, in this way. Look, this, the great thing about this church is there is a, uh, a wide audience and a wide culture of people in this room. And that, what that means is that probably all of you have a resistance to Jesus for different reasons. Some of you, what Jesus would have to say about sexuality deeply discourages you. Some of you hear what Jesus has to say about sexuality and love that. Some of you hear what Jesus has to say about forgiveness and reconciliation and hate that. And some of you hear what Jesus has to say about forgiveness and reconciliation and are like, yes, I hope other people are listening to this. Some of you hear what Jesus has to say about giving and sacrifice and it feels like your treasure being pried out of your loving hands. Others of you long for, you look at people and go, I hope you've heard Jesus say that to you. And here's the point. If there's no part of God's Word ever coming to you, and it feeling like something is being ripped out of your hands, you've not heard His Word shepherd you. Because the King will come with a living and active sword, to have an alive relationship with you and press you for things that will feel like he doesn't want to heal your mom. It feels like he's got something better, like something that has nothing to do with you in mind. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to shepherd and love you and actually even give you the pleasure of learning that the joy of obedience is doing it just to do it and putting yourself under the love and shepherding of the king. Look, to get ready for him, you have, to, you have to help, you have to let him come with vulnerability. You have to let him come to shepherd you. But thirdly, you've got to let him come 
uh, to surprise you and disrupt you. Look, go back to the text. There's two observations I want to show you. Look in verse 2. This is the most famous verse in this text. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. And then skip down to verse 6. Excuse me, verse 5. When the Assyrians come into our land and treads at our places, then we will raise against him even shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Look, when he mentions that the king is going to come from Bethlehem of Ephrathah, he says, look, this is a place that is too little to be among the clans of Judah. What he's saying is that the coming of this king is going to be very surprising. Uh, in fact, if, if you… Uh, Ephrathah is the region where both Bethlehem is located. But if you go back to the book of Joshua in chapter 15, there's this very boring passage uh, where it just, for many, many verses, gives uh, all these outlines of the promised land, just mentions all these towns, all these places, and it's basically outlining the region of the promised land that God is going to give Joshua and the people of Israel. And it goes, all of these towns, I mean, if you want to parallel it, imagine somebody giving it all of L.A. County and just going, Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach, El Segundo, Venice, Santa Monica, Palisades, Malibu, and then crossing it over the valley and just going all by all, mentioned all there. You know what's not mentioned in there? Bethlehem. Because this place is so small and so obscure. It's not, e- it's not even mentioned as part of the promised land. And then when he says, whose coming is from old and from ancient of days, most commentators think that's absolutely referring to a specific time. And probably what it's referring to is uh, when David was anointed with his, fa- his father Jesse. If you've ever heard that story, what happens is Samuel comes to uh, try to find a king for Israel. And uh, God has rejected Saul, and so he comes to Jesse, and he's like, God told me to come to you, and surely there's a king amongst your sons. And all of the good-looking ones, the athletic one, the academic ones, all parade in front of Samuel. And Samuel's like, well, surely that's the one. And God says, no, 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 no. And all of them are rejected. And then Samuel's like, is that it? And Jesse's like, well, there's the baby runt out in the woods. And God says, that's the one. And here, when it talks about Bethlehem, He's basically saying, yeah, this town that the king is coming from, it's more obscure and it's more small and it's more thoughtless than even that little kid who became the king. It's like nobody thinks it's going to come from this place. And here's what he will do. It says he will shepherd like a prince. He will rescue his people from his enemies and he will subdue all the Assyrians. He will subdue everyone who attacks them. Now, Put these together. Everyone read that the king was going to come from Bethlehem. It didn't make sense. And they thought he's going to overthrow their enemies. But no one thought that the reality and the teaching that he was going to come from this little baby Bethlehem would have anything to do with how he would deal with their enemies until Matthew chapter 2, when the gospel writer quotes this exact text. But you know what he does? This is amazing. When he says, but you, O Bethlehem, he, he doesn't say, 
you who are too little among the clans of Judah, he says, you are by no means small. Here's what the gospel writer is saying. The baby Jesus coming in the manger to be the king is so cataclysmic, is so life-changing, is so disrupting. Here's what it does, is it makes the small, obscure things significant. And it makes the way of the world, the way you dominate, the way you conquer, the way you shepherd and lead upside down. And it's teaching us this about opening your heart and preparing your room for the coming of the king. That look, the way to do it is you have to know that the values of this world are going to be turned upside down. This is a powerful thing about how the gospel works. It is, the gospel is itself incarnational for culture. And in that this, you know, this is a powerful thing. You became a Christian and you did not have to learn to speak Hebrew or Greek. You did not have to become a Middle Eastern person like Jesus was. You did not have to take on all of these Jewish customs that lived and marked the people of Israel forever and ever and ever. That's not true in Islam. If you want to become an Islamic person, you must learn to speak Arabic. And you must take on all of the Middle Eastern culture. Christianity is the exact opposite. The gospel comes, incarnates in our culture and says the reality of who Jesus is will take on flesh and actually come and, and, and adopt and make sense in your culture. And it will come into your culture, the things that you uphold, and turn them upside down. And here's what it means at Christmas. What you think power is, what you think success is, and what you think happiness is, is like oil and water to that baby coming out of Bethlehem, being crowned the king. And you cannot go into 2023 after experiencing Christmas and find success and joy and happiness the same way everyone else in your culture and life is doing. Because if you have, you've missed Christmas because what Christmas wants to do is it come into all of the dark things, the way that the world works, and just flip it upside down. One of the most incredible stories out of World War I is on December 24th, 1914, in the midst of horrific war between the British, the French, and the Germans, they called a truce. Did you know this? For three days, they put down their guns, and English troops and German troops exchanged gifts and had meals together. And one article in the London Times said this, may the guns fall silent the night the angels sing. Look, the coming of the king is meant to come into the way that the world works, the way that, that we're sure that we're going to have peace, the way that we're sure that we're going to have success, the way we're sure we're going to do all of these things, and to flip it upside down. And until you are open to being surprised and disrupted in the way that you have always lived life, You've not heard Christmas. So one of the challenges is, what, what, what is it? What is it in your life that you're doing exactly like everyone else in L.A. County that has got to be subverted in the next year so that you can prepare your heart for the coming of the King? Look, to open yourself up to Him, you've got to be vulnerable and needy. You've got to be submissive and obedient. You've got to be surprised and disrupted. But fourth and lastly, you've got to be patient and hopeful. 
This is a very obscure verse, but it says this in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. It's a metaphor for labor pains. And and what it's suggesting is that metaphorically, the ritual of giving birth uh, is going to be real life enacted for the people of Israel. That is, while they're in exile, while they're longing for a king, it's going to be short-lived but real suffering. Now, the second half of the verse is believed to be added on as a pre-exilic oracle to a promise of a hope of a restored world, so that the word return, when it says the brothers will return, uh, is almost a conversion word. But the words that are all around it that talk about the coming of this king are words that say, he shall come forth, that are all communicating this that the predictions and the promises of this coming king to restore the world, to return people into, from exile, to heal them from the suffering and pain that metaphorically makes sense to us in childbirth, is actually not going to happen in their lifetime. And all the promises that they're hearing are things that they are to look forward to but are not actually going to experience in and of themselves. And if you don't know that the promises of Christmas and the coming of the King have to be done in patient hope, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to blame yourself or you're going to blame God. And as you're going to hear all these songs sung, you're going to hear these texts read, and you're going to look at your life and go, I don't feel God, these songs make no sense to me, or I don't see any fruit of this. And you will go, maybe I haven't been faithful enough. Or maybe this is because I've been struggling with this sin. Maybe I've been hiding this from everybody else and God is punishing me. Or what you'll do is you'll think these are never true and it's not possible for these to be known. But look, the only way to prepare yourself for the king is to know all these promises are coming and you have to know I may get a foretaste, I may get a hint, but these have to be anticipated in patient hope. One of the most well-known things the Gospel of Matthew tells us is that when the baby is born, there's a star over Bethlehem, this place mentioned. And you know what the, the star represented is that something has happened and broken into this world. Something has begun with the coming of, the baby, of this baby. And, and you, know what, you know what the last thing described of Jesus in the Bible is? The beginning of his life is that there's a star over Bethlehem. And the last thing mentioned of him in the Bible is that he is the bright morning star. And the bright morning star, what it is, is it appears in the middle of the night and it represents that the night has ended and the morning is just breaking in. And the sun hasn't come up yet and you can't quite see the light yet, but it means the tables have turned. And the darkness is ending. And if if you don't let that mark how you go through these promises of Christmas, you'll get cynical real quick because of how life happens. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he was a little boy, his mom died of cancer. And so when he writes this book about the magician's nephew in Diggory, he's literally working out his own story. And what happens is that after Diggory brings the apple back to Aslan, and Aslan puts it 
in the city. He takes the core and he says, give it to your mother. And she takes it and she's healed. And what Lewis would go on to say is, there are times in your life where you have to have not just the experience of light, but the peak of light so that you can make it through the darkness. You have to open yourself up to the promises, but only in patient hope. Because friends, the suffering and the darkness that you go through may not be alleviated in this life. And it doesn't mean these songs are hollow, and it doesn't mean these scriptures are fake. It just means that the sun is not up, but the bright morning star has begun. And you know, you know how we know and can be sure of that to sing this. In verse 1, when it talks about this king, it says, he will have a rod that will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is actually a very ancient Mesopotamian ritual that what would happen to the king is they would take him, they would strip him of his crown, and then the priest would come and strike him on the cheek, and that itself would predict his success. And it's such a bizarre ritual, and it makes almost no sense to us until Matthew 27. Here's what it says about Jesus. They spit on him. They took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes, and they led him away to crucify him. Do you want to know how you can have patience and hope? And how you can be open and vulnerable? How, how you can come submissive? How you can come obedient? How you can come and be surprised and disrupted? Is because, look, this king is a king who would come in our flesh, no matter if you are any of those things, and would put himself before us, and his success would be your salvation to guarantee you when you can look on the cross and know that all the promises of Christmas are yes and amen in Him. So that in patient hope, you can go with that hymn that says this, Thou art coming to a king. Many petitions in thy hand to bring for his love and power are such that none can ask too much. Look, if you, have, if you ever experienced something like C.S. Lewis in that, look, you can come in patient hope with the longing of Christmas, knowing there is a king who is coming to restore and make this world the way it was meant to be. Look, let earth receive her king. Prepare your heart for that this Christmas. Let me pray. Father, look, some of these things are too wonderful to talk about, too wonderful to read. And so we're going to sing them, and we're going to declare them. Lord, there, there is stress, there is hurt, there is pain, there is confusion that we've been through in 2022. Lord, would your coming, would the promises of the King, Lord, be loud, be glorious, and be healing for us, for anybody going through any of that personally, Lord. Would you, would you meet us through the power of your Holy Spirit to the point that they can feel confident to come to a king with petitions in their hand, Lord, in patient hope, knowing one day you will grant them all yes and amen. 
because of your son in that manger. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.